be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, tells us that pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's a phrase that many of us more commonly known as pride goes before a fall. Many of us can attest to the wisdom of that statement, not only because it's God's word, but from our personal experience. In Daniel chapter 4, we have the final story of a proud man, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The account we have before us has similarities to chapter 2 of the book of Daniel and has helpfully been described by Ian Duguid as the fall and rise of Nebuchadnezzar. There is ever a man who embodies that pride goes before a fall. It is Nebuchadnezzar. But as we will see, the fall is not the end of the story. Today we're going to look at this fall and rise to see why pride is such a problem and how a fall is restored. Let's open up Daniel 4 together. As always, you can follow along with the insert or with your study book if you have it with you today. This passage is unique in Daniel because we have Nebuchadnezzar's own words describing his story. Verse 4 tells us that the king was relaxing in his palace, enjoying the fruits of a lifetime of accomplishments, when suddenly he has another frightening dream. He's disturbed. And eventually, he calls for Daniel to interpret the dream. And the interpretation is not a good one. He is told that his kingdom will be taken away from him. He will be cast out of the city, losing all he had, even his mind. But after the dream, life goes on. For an entire year, nothing happens. We don't know if the king had forgotten his dream or assumed it wasn't going to happen. But one year later, the king is strolling along on the roof of his palace, looking out at all he had accomplished and celebrating himself. By all secular standards, he has every right to do it. He built an empire literally rebuilding the city of Babylon with its hanging gardens, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This is a man who accomplished more than countless people before him, and certainly countless after, and he loved himself for it. And that's the problem. You see, the only thing bigger than the empire that Nebuchadnezzar built was his ego. His pride. And that pride is exactly what he had been warned about one year before taking this faithful stroll on his palace rooftop. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a beautiful tree 
that was so tall it reached to heaven. It was so large that everyone in all the world could see it. The fruit that this tree provided gave enough food for all of the animals and peoples of the entire world. It provided for everything the world needed. And that is exactly how Nebuchadnezzar viewed himself. He is the tree, strong and powerful, the center of the world. And all of his greatness, all of his accomplishments were his own doing. Daniel knows that this dream is God's warning. Verse 19 tells us that he was dismayed by it. He knew that the king would be cut down to size if he didn't repent. And so Daniel warns him. But true to form for Nebuchadnezzar, nothing changes. He doesn't repent. And one year later, as he's walking along, he looks out and says, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built? by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He was embodying what William Temple called the essence of sin. I make myself in a host of ways the center of the universe. Nebuchadnezzar believed himself to be the center of life, equal to, if not greater than God. Rather than learning anything from the dream or Daniel's warning, he remains filled with pride at all he has accomplished, as if it was all his doing. And the result was that he was denying that God is in fact God. And so the sentence on him is swift and severe. His kingdom is taken from him. He's driven out of the city, and even his mind and reason were stripped away. Verse 17 tells us that this was necessary. It was necessary so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And sets over it the lowliest of men. Daniel reinforces this by telling the king that his humiliation would last until he knew that the Most High rules the kingdom and gives it to whom he will. That's the dream Nebuchadnezzar had and the result of his pride. There's two things we want to take away from this. First, Pride, in case it's not clear at this point, is a killer. And it's one that all people face. From the very beginning, the sin of pride has been at the center of sinful living. It was the chief sin of Adam and Eve, and it has been the chief sin of people ever since. It is born of the desire to remove God from the throne and place ourselves on it. And Nebuchadnezzar might be an extreme example of this, but we have countless other ones we could point to. The ruler of the condo board where you live, who will have no debate over who does the landscaping in their building. I guess it's not in the building, is it? Outside the building. Right? 
Growing up, I played competitive baseball. My parents were really active in the uh, baseball organization. They volunteered a lot. They were on the board. Basically, every problem that board faced was born of this. Somebody deciding that they were mo the most important person in the room, and whatever they decided was right. And to question them, well, it's like questioning God himself. We may at one point or another have seen this in the church as well, right? You know, I'll be at the, the missions committee, or the kids ministry, or the guy in the robes. Whatever it is, setting ourselves up as the center of everything. Forcing everyone else to go along with what we want because what we want is always right. It's the temptation to make ourselves the king or queen of our kingdom and to rule it with an iron fist. And that never ends well, does it? Yet we keep doing it. Making ourselves the center of the world. Needing to learn like Nebuchadnezzar that it is God who gives all things. And that even our very breath is in his hands. Never mind whatever it is, the kingdom that we are setting up. It's one thing we want to learn here. All of us face the temptation to pridefully set ourselves up as kings or queens of our world, usurping God and living for our glory. It's the second thing we want to learn from this dream. is that the solution to the problem of pride may not be what we think it is. Experiencing moments of the power of God, even miraculous events, may not be enough to solve the problem of pride. What do I mean by that? Well, we have that phrase, right? Seeing is believing. One many of us subscribe to, I think. It's just not true. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is a perfect example of that. Nebuchadnezzar himself had... A warning in a dream. But a year passes and he ignores the dream. Before that dream, he's seen how the Lord gave Daniel wisdom to interpret dreams. He's seen how the Lord gave Daniel and his friends health, even on a meager diet. And he saw how the Lord delivered three young men from a fiery furnace that was so hot, it killed those who walked near it. He has seen mighty acts of God, and yet, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed for Nebuchadnezzar. He's still the same old, boastful, prideful, tyrant king of Babylon. Look at how he responds to the dream. Daniel has interpreted a dream for him in the past. Nebuchadnezzar knows, because he tells us, that Daniel has the power of God, that Daniel knows the God who reveals mysteries, and yet, who does the king call together to help him? All his other advisors, not Daniel. All that he has seen and experienced, and yet when things get tough, he falls back to his old way of living. He ignores everything he has seen 
from God. He turns to his magicians and enchanters, his Chaldeans and the astrologers. It's pretty predictable how that ended up for him. He's got to call Daniel. And why would he do it? Why wouldn't he just turn to Daniel? It doesn't make any sense. It's because seeing and knowing are not the same thing. Seeing and believing are not the same thing. He had seen God act. He had seen that God is powerful, but he was unwilling to submit to him. He was unwilling to believe that God is who he says he is. Let me give you a couple of examples of this in our time. I know a gentleman from a church I went to, gosh, 25 years ago now, I guess. He actually saw someone whose burns were healed instantly through prayer. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I know someone who was healed of asthma after being prayed over instantly. You know, I tell people about these things, and the rationalization starts. Oh, well, you weren't in the room. You didn't see it. You don't know it was prayer. It could have been anything. How can you know it was God? All right. I've done it myself. I remember being in a car with my parents when I was in high school. We were driving back from visiting my brother in South Carolina. And uh, they were listening to a preacher on the radio. I have no idea who. And I'm in the backseat, kind of half paying attention, not really engaged, and I hear, are you listening? I ignore it. I hear, are you listening again? I ignore it. And then I hear, David, are you listening? And so finally, I'm like, what? (laughs) What do you want me to listen to? My parents had no idea what I was talking about. Neither one of them had said anything to me. And I guarantee you, the preacher on the radio did not say, David, are you listening? Because they would have told me that. They were actually listening to him. Well, then who was it? Well, of course, the rationalization starts, right? Did I really hear that? Was I asleep? I wasn't asleep, by the way. Did it happen like I think it did, or am I just making this up? Was I that out of it? Mom and dad just playing a funny, funny joke on me? It's hilarious, right? Seeing is not always believing. Seeing is not always believing because we don't want to believe what we're seeing. Because if what we are seeing is true, what does that mean? If Nebuchadnezzar genuinely believed that God was all-powerful, that means that Nebuchadnezzar isn't. He isn't king of the world or king of even his own life. And so he doesn't want to believe. The consequences are too drastic for him. And it's the same with us. Maybe not on that scale, but we do it too. If we believe that the miracle is truly a miracle, if God has acted in a particular way, that means something. That has to make a difference, and that's just terrifying to us. It means that something might have to change, and we don't want that. 
The truth is so pervasive and deep-seated in us that Matthew's gospel tells us that witnesses to the resurrection, literally staring at the risen Jesus, did not believe. They questioned. You can read about that in Matthew 28, 17. Prove I'm not making it up. We don't want to deal with what it would mean if Jesus actually rose from the dead. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he's done what scripture says he's done, we are left with no choice then but to either rationalize it all away, miss from a time long ago, or submit to him. To see him as Lord and Savior of all. Nebuchadnezzar shows us that pride is the chief of sins and that it is so ingrained in us that we will reject even the miraculous if it means giving up our place as the kings and queens of our lives. So what's the solution? Where's the gospel in Daniel chapter 4? It's that God in his sovereign goodness extends humbling grace to his people. Seeing isn't believing because seeing isn't enough. We need a heart transplant. You see, the hearts of people are so prideful and sinful that for us to be made whole again, God's got to take out the old and he's got to put a new one in. And that's exactly what he does. And sometimes he does that by stripping us of all that we have put our trust in. He does it by chopping down our kingdoms. The sentence placed on Nebuchadnezzar seems harsh, being driven out from the city and caused to live like an animal. That's a brutal punishment, but God doesn't do it just to punish him. God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar is covered in grace. In the dream, the watcher, which is an angel, by the way, in case you were wondering, the angel pronounces that the tree is to be cut down. Right? That's the judgment. The tree's got to be cut down. Verse 15 is crucial, though. We read, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. What does that matter? Well, God could have removed the entire tree, couldn't he? He could have killed it, but he didn't. He chopped away all that he needed to, all that it was necessary to, so that from the stump, new life could come. It's an act of gracious mercy, and it's what he does for all of us. All of us who believe in Christ. Christians believe in something that we call sanctification, the process of being made more and more like Jesus. It's a necessary and wonderful thing, but sometimes it means God has to remove things from our lives. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 15, every branch that does bear fruit, he, meaning God, prunes that it might bear more fruit. God needed to take Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, his power, his riches, even his mind, so that Nebuchadnezzar could finally learn that God is God and he is not. 
God does the same for us. Sometimes he takes the job from us because that's where we put our hope for salvation. Sometimes he lets us experience the consequence of our sin so that we might learn to turn to him and ask for his forgiveness. He brings us into times of trial so that we can learn and trust him alone. He does it so that we can experience his grace, so that he can give us that heart transplant that every one of us needs. That could be one of the hardest lessons for followers of Jesus to learn, but it is a crucial one. God does not cause negative things in our lives so that he can just punish us. But sometimes God needs to show us the negative things we've placed in our lives so he can take them from us, even when we don't realize they're negative. So the truth is that those things are acting as barriers to knowing his grace, and so it is therefore just that, an act of grace. I wonder what it might be that God needs to remove from our lives. I wonder if we're willing to prayerfully and openly consider what might be acting as a barrier in my life to knowing the grace of Christ even more. I've wrestled with that question all week. It's not been a comfortable week. (laughs) But the end will be good. I'm not at the end. But it'll be good because the end will be God's grace. And all along, It's God's grace. One last thing before I sit down. The solution to our pride is God's grace because through God's grace, he gives us the gift of humility. In his grace, God replaces our pride-filled hearts with hearts shaped by his humbling grace. Nebuchadnezzar experienced judgment as we are told so that he could see who God was. And then at the end of our passage, we have a pure act of humility. Verse 34, we read, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. This ordeal began with Nebuchadnezzar casting his eyes downward on the city and the kingdom that he had built. And his pride and sin drove him literally mad. But when he lifted his eyes upward to the king of heaven and earth, that is when reason was restored. It was an act of humility. He was acknowledging his sin against God. And make no mistake, friends, sinning against God is madness. And it's a madness we undertake because of our pride. And so for many of us, God needs us to bring us to that place, removing what has caused our pride from our lives so that in his grace, he can humble us. He can bring us to that place where we lift our eyes to heaven. Sometimes that looks drastic, like it did for Nebuchadnezzar, and it almost always feels drastic when we're in it. But then we look back, And we see how it was God's sheer grace the whole time. Humble submission is exactly the posture that God desires from his people. It's the posture that Christ exemplified for us. 
On the cross, he humbly submitted himself to the will of the Father and bore the judgment for us so that God could extend his grace to us. And thankfully, Daniel tells us what this posture looks like. After he interprets the dream, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins. Confess, in other words, by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. He's telling him to confess and to look to God and follow how he would have us live. A life of righteousness, a life of showing mercy to others, of caring for those in need, a life summarized by the prophet Micah, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. It's not easy to be sure. As a parent of young children, I am reminded of how scary it can be for people to admit when they've done something wrong. As a pastor of people, I am reminded of how scary it can be for people to confess their sins. And as a sinful person myself, I know my own heart and how much I don't want to confess my pride. That's why we need God's grace. It's why we need Jesus to know that God does not let judgment have the last word. He does not tear down even Nebuchadnezzar without extending the offer to rebuild. Grace is God's free gift. And so the question we have is, will we unwrap the gift? Will we receive it or are we going to leave it to collect dust? Will we pridefully cast our eyes on ourselves and all that we think we've accomplished? Or will we lift our eyes to heaven in humility? Humility is fixing our eyes on Jesus and receiving his grace. And there is grace enough for everyone. There is grace enough for Nebuchadnezzar. There's grace for you. Will we join with Nebuchadnezzar? With his words in verse 37, we praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Scripture tells us that pride goes before a fall, but we also learn that in the words of Ian Duguid, though he humbles the proud, he also redeems and exalts the humble and through his grace, makes them fit to stand in his presence forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that in your grace, you humble your people. We do confess our pride to you, Lord, and how it has been such a barrier to knowing you and following you, and for some of us, maybe receiving you at all. Father, we pray that in your mercy, you would remove our pride from us, that you would replace our hearts of stone with ones of flesh, that you might write your laws upon, and that we would humbly submit to your Son each and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.